This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. You're listening to the Mornings with Simi podcast. And on today's episode, the provincial government and Fraser Health are pulling funding from a hospice in South Delta, which provides palliative care, but will not provide medical assistance in dying. Sport fishing is one of the industries that really depends on tourists from outside of BC, and they're worried about what this year will look like. So how can locals help out? And everyone has seen their grocery bill go up since the COVID-19 pandemic began. And Stats Canada is predicting food will continue to cost more and more. 224 uh, active cases as of this morning, of those of whom uh, 32 people are hospitalized and five people are in critical care or ICU. We have had uh, one additional death in the last two days in a long-term care home in Fraser Health. All right, so that was Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday afternoon. We did have the one death yesterday, so unfortunate, and of course condolences to the families. Uh, But we also know that BC had gone, on a more positive note, two days without anybody being killed as a result of COVID-19. And what's important about that is that it has been two weeks since we entered phase two of that whole reopening plan. That was, you know, we've been shut down since March 19th, and now things are slowly starting to open. And we haven't seen that spike in transmission, at least not yet, knock wood. So that is some good news. Now, Jason Tetro is an infectious disease expert, host of the Super Awesome Science Show podcast, and of course, a regular right here on CKNW. He joins us now to talk more about what happens next if we stay on track. Jason, thanks for being here. Hey, great to be joining you. So how does it look right now, do you think, for BC? I mean, it's looking fantastic. The numbers are essentially showing that uh, everybody has been doing what they've been asked to do over the last few months. Uh, The opening is going in a nice, um, you know, controlled fashion. Uh, It's like Dr. Henry has gone from being sort of uh, the guru and mentor, uh, and now she's sort of like the pace car. Uh, We're all just following. We all want to get going on that race again, back to the rat race, if you want to call it that. Um, But we know we're not there yet. And so we're all going at that nice pace that seems to be exactly where we need to be. So we know that those daily transmission numbers are low, like in the teens Mm -hmm. for the most part, consistent. Are we trying to get that number to zero? And and what happens at that point? Well, getting to zero is always the goal. The problem is that uh, there are always going to be sort of uh, transmissions that are going to happen, but if we know how those transmissions happen. Remember, the lockdown happened as a result of the fact that we were having uncontrolled spread. In other words, we couldn't trace it back to a cruise ship or to an international travel or something like that. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen now is these individual cases will be able to be traced back. And when we get to that point, then we have it fully under control. We know how it's spreading and then we can sort of allow the rest of the world to get back to normal and those who um, you know, are not lucky enough to have been you know, uh, infected or something will have to follow the isolation or the monitoring procedures, right. and that's how we gain complete control over this virus. So the fear is always of a case popping up and we don't know where it came from. Always. And, and the problem that we've always had to deal with, and it doesn't matter if it's COVID, if it's uh, swine flu, whatever you want to call it, um, thing is, 
when we start losing the ability to know where the virus has been and where it essentially is going, then we start to see these flare-up, these outbreaks. Uh, Long-term care facilities, as we've heard, uh, are unfortunately sort of um, um, a sentinel. We know about uncontrolled spread when we hear about them, uh, but there are other places where this could happen as well. Uh, with something like a measles, we know that it's a school. When we hear about noroviruses, it's, a, it's restaurants. So at this point, we still you know, are, are being cautious that we're getting to that fully controlled, but we're not quite there yet. We also know that when it comes to viruses, they tend to come in waves. Is this just the first wave? The, this is a weird one, okay, because this virus is more like SARS than we actually thought. Uh, you know, when I was first asked about it, I said it was kind of SARS-like. Mm-hmm. Well, the more that we're finding out with the more cases, we're realizing, no, this is probably, you know, just a different version of SARS. So in that context, while it is, you know, can be devastating for those who have pre-existing conditions and other problems, um, it can be stamped out because we showed with SARS. So in theory, we might be able to essentially make it go away without second or third waves. Um, that's still very, very hopeful thinking. Um, at the moment, we start, we, we are seeing some spikes happening in areas where they've already had that first spike, but it's nowhere near as bad. So hopefully, if we do end up with these ne- you know, subsequent waves, they're going to be very smaller and much more controlled. So when we see like a one-day spike in the numbers, is that something to worry about, do you think, or do we need to see a consistent level of the numbers increasing before we should get worried? The, the latter. The last thing we want to do is have a system whereby everybody is sitting on their couch or at work or at school watching Dr. Henry, and she says we had a spike of 50 cases, and then everybody locks down. That's the last right. thing we need. What we want to do is we want to make sure that if we do start to see some kind of increase in the number of cases, that we can find ways to be able to identify how this spike happened. Um, we, we do see this like I said before, with measles. How many times have you, we reported about uh, a measles outbreak right. in one of the cities? But we don't lock everything down. But what we do is we try and figure out how we can control that so it eventually disappears. Right, but we also know that with measles, a lot of people are vaccinated. Well, that, that's one of the reasons why we keep saying that we're not going to get back to normal until we vaccine, right? Um, right? Because if we have a vaccine, then we know that there's going to be a large segment of the population that is going to be protected and a segment of the population that is still going to be high at risk and a segment of the population that have decided not to take the vaccine who we can essentially um, provide control measures on. Now, how that's going to look like, we don't know, but we do know from our measles and our flu experiences that the more people who are vaccinated, the less likely we're going to have waves and spikes. Right, but that just seems a a long ways off right now. We're certainly learning a lot about vaccine production, aren't we? Well, yes, Uh, and and the problem that a lot of people sort of uh, are, are hearing about is the idea that a vaccine is producing a strong enough response. 
you have to understand, if you've got a really, really good, robust vaccine, like a polio vaccine, well, yeah, you only need it once or, or you know, even maybe with a booster. But if you have something that's weak uh, along the lines of, say, an influenza virus uh, vaccine, then this is something that you may have year after year after year. But either way, if you can at least give somebody the protection that they need during a wave, whether it be a seasonal wave or whether it be an outbreak wave, um, then what you're going to do is essentially reduce the chances that we're going to have a large number of cases. And as everybody knows, that secondary sequelae, uh, all the other things that can come with a COVID-19 infection can essentially be, you know, removed. Jason, thank you very much for your time. It was a pleasure. Take care. That is Jason Tetro, infectious disease expert and host of the Super Awesome Science Show podcast. Find it wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This is Mornings with Simi. It was another night of protests across the United States last night and also building criticism of President Donald Trump for a photo op that he did at an historic church in Washington, D.C. yesterday afternoon. And that criticism is coming from all sides, actually. Uh, Joining us now for more on this is Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. All right. So yesterday we saw that picture of the president in front of the church holding a Bible. How did that come about? Uh, so it, 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 it came about very quickly uh, and very uh, chaotically. Uh, you know, I'm standing in front of that church right now and, you know, looking towards that park. They've now erected an even taller fence to try and keep all protesters out. But essentially what happened yesterday uh, is they had all police lined up already pre-wearing their gas masks, whether they were riot police or the state or cap- uh, the, uh, the parks police. Uh, and essentially they just rushed the protesters without any kind of warning, pushing, through, uh, pushing them to the sides. They had mounted police that were going after the protesters. They threw in flashbangs. They put tear gas out to try and really uh, disperse things really quickly. Uh, it led to an estimated amount of tension between the protesters and police. And essentially, it was at the moment that the president was in the Rose Garden giving his speech. Uh, he finished that. He walked across. He did his photo op and he left. And it really heightened the tensions and created a lot more chaos than it actually needed to just for that photo op. Right. And I understand that religious leaders are not happy about this. Religious leaders across the country are not happy with that, but neither are the reverends who actually work inside this building who say that they were caught off guard. They didn't understand what the president was doing. They said that this was uh, essentially antithetical to the teachings of Jesus to come here and try and stand in front of a church and use it for some kind of political motive. Uh, And essentially, the president is now, uh, you know, essentially what happened is the president walked across here to try and prove the point after people were laughing at him for hiding in a bunker. And essentially, he's now being put under that same spotlight, that same critical spotlight for coming here for that photo op. Right. One of the other, I think, things that got a lot of attention yesterday is his threat to deploy the military if the governors don't crack down harder. How is that possible? Well, I mean, look, this was the president saying he's the law and order president and respected the protesters at the same time that he had police actively tear gassing a peaceful protest and then threatening to send in the military, which goes against the Posse Comitatus Act, which says the military cannot carry out domestic law enforcement in this country. He does have an extension of that act called the Insurrection Act that says that the military can come in if there is something that is unable to be handled by law enforcement, but it has only been used a few times in the past. And in the 1950s and 60s, it was actually used to enhance civil rights by ending segregation. And it allowed uh, for the military to come in and get uh, people uh, in one room with another. Uh, The president now threatening military action essentially goes against uh, what these protests are about, that 
remember, it's, it, it, this is about George Floyd. This is about the killing of an African-American man by yeah. police. And the, the, the president's now threatening to bring in military because of this generational anger that is built up across these minority communities in this country. And that's a lot of anger. And, and certainly there have been some really tragic situations arising from this. Uh, some bystanders who were shot and as well some police officers. Yeah, we've had police officers that have been shot across the country. We've had a number of innocent bystanders. We've had the media that have been attacked across this country, uh, caught up in the, the chaos. But, you know, and while we're seeing chaotic moments and we're seeing damage and we're seeing violence, it is a result of, like we said, that pent up anger and rage inside of people, either, you know, kind of joining these protests to be anti-Donald Trump, to be anti-Republican government, or to be this anti-oppression that people have felt now for decades in this country. And the president trying to use this strong arm of Approach to stop these protests from happening is only adding fuel to this fire. And what is happening now? You said you're outside that church where the picture happened yesterday. What is it like on the streets of Washington this morning? Well, they've actually pushed people further back. So the street that we're standing on is H Street, which is one block north of the White House. They won't let you near the park anymore. They've pushed all media back. They're not even letting people come to do their kind of morning jogs through the area. So it's unclear how this is going to work tonight. If another protest decides to develop, they've lost their area that they were standing and they're going to get pushed back further into what would be the downtown business district of D.C. This could cause for uh, for more chaos tonight if these protesters don't have access to the place where they were trying to get their message across to the president. This is simply going to be a wait-and-see situation now. All right, Reggie, thank you very much for that. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. The regional district of Kootenai Boundary forced to place a total of 189 properties on evacuation order. About 2,000 people told to be ready to leave home at a moment's notice. That's Global News reporter John Hua. Some residents in the Kootenays have been under an evacuation alert since the weekend, and that is due to high water levels. Almost the entire regional district of central Kootenay has been impacted by the rainfall. We thought, let's get the latest update on what is happening from there. Francis Micah joins us now, communications officer for the regional district of Kootenay. Thank you very much for being here. You're welcome. So what is the flooding situation right now? How are things looking? Well, I didn't get any calls last night about tactical evacuations. That's when we have to take people out, um, ask people to leave their homes right on the spot with no notice. So that's good news. Um, we still are going to have those 189 homes, properties, which is about 400 people out of their homes today because we're, this is the point where we've, I mean, it's uh, at this time of morning, it was a late night last night when rivers crested around midnight, I believe, and so crews are just going to be starting to look at some of the effects of the water from last night. Okay, and is this nor- normal levels for what we're seeing at this time of year, or has something happened that makes this more unusual? Well, this is what we're calling a 1 in 20 year, which is, which is a way of describing the amount of water that's expected, and so it's, a, it's above normal, Um we did have a couple of days of very hot weather followed by um, a considerable amount of rain, but I need to add that that was less rain than what was originally forecast, so this could have been much, much worse. That's uh, not much consolation to the people who are out, no. out of their homes right now and that are going to see some damage, but it's it, it's an above-normal um, uh, flood year, um, but I, I think we're not done yet. That's the other thing is the unfortunate news is, is we've still got a lot of snow to melt. Mm. So the cooler temperatures are good because this is going to give us time to kind of um, get people back in their homes, see how some of those flood protection works performed. Some of the these big tiger dams, these big kind of um, water-filled tubes that are used to protect various areas. 
so we're going to get some information here, a bit of a breather, and then we're going to see um, what the weather looks like going forward. And what kind of damage are we talking about? You said some of these homes are definitely going to sustain damage. I mean, most of them we're going to have, if you think of water coming into a basement, water. Um, there's some areas we're going to see some erosion, definitely bank erosion, because a lot of people live along the river, as all of us like to do. Um, so I, I don't know specifics what damage has occurred, but I know it's going to be um, wet basements. Um, even yesterday, there were some, some homes that were, were seeing some water come in. All right, so how, like, how much longer do you think the area is kind of out of the danger zone? Oh, you know, if the BC River Forecast Centre and all the meteorologists we have talking to us can't predict that, <laughs> I definitely can't. But the, uh, uh, what I can say is that, that the snow will melt. We're just hoping it does slowly over the next couple of weeks. Right, okay. So at this point, how many people, I'm sorry, would you say have been out of their homes? We have about 400 people um, who've, who are evacuated now, who, who have, whose properties have been evacuated right now, and we have about 2,000 people that are on, still on alert. I expect the situation is going to change in the next couple of days for the better, um, just given all the information we have to this point. And, but it, we, we could return to the situation as well. All right, fingers crossed then. Francis, thank you. You're welcome. That is Francis Mike, a communications officer for the Regional District of Kootenay. As you heard, about 400 residents out of their homes, potentially another 2,000 or so on alert, where they may have to leave on a moment's notice. Yes, flooding issues. As you heard Francis say there, it's a one in 20 year event. You know how we often hear of a historic flooding or one in a hundred year event. This is a one in 20 year event, not completely unheard of, but still you are talking about homes that are going to get damaged, uh, likely, right? And that is all for the people whose home that is. So we will keep you updated on how that goes there. Hopefully it goes as Francis has said there. And over the next couple of days, it is a just the right combination of temperatures for the melting of the snow and the weather and the rain and all of that. Uh, but we'll keep you posted on how that goes. Coming up next for us, we are going to talk about sport fishing here in BC. This is Mornings with Simi. We know how dependent this province is on tourism and one of the areas of tourism that is going to be very hard hit by what's going on right now is sport fishing. They really need those tourists from outside of BC to come in and spend some big money on those beautiful rivers all over our province. And they are all worried this year about what that whole industry is going to look like. So we thought, let's talk more about this because they need help and they're hoping for help from British Columbians. Joining us now is Owen Bird, Executive Director of the Sport Fishing Institute of BC. Owen, thanks for being here. Oh, good morning, Simi. Thanks, uh, thanks for talking about this uh, this subject. Yeah, it's a it's a big one. I know for a lot of people out there, like how bad is the season looking right now? Well. You know, like everything and everyone, um, COVID has had its um, very, very significant effect. So, you know, the, the season ordinarily would be uh, underway um, even, even in in early March. It would have been uh, taking place out out in Vancouver Harbor and and out of the south end of Vancouver Island. But uh, obviously, due to COVID and requirements about people uh, keeping uh, physical distancing, it's it, it's been affected 100 percent it's not been happening at all yeah how big is the sport fishing industry here the sport fishing industry in british columbia is about uh, 1.1 billion in uh, revenues uh, generated uh, annually and uh, employs 9,000 people and I, I would venture to say uh, in small um, coastal communities particularly in smaller communities throughout bc uh, probably touches just about every 
everybody that that lives in those in those places. Right. So how are they going to manage this year when you don't have those kind of deep-pocketed, big-money tourists coming in? Well, you know, that, that is an important component of, of the fishery and the, and the sport fishing industry. It is true and undeniable, and that is uh, definitely a gap. Um, but, you know, at the same time, there's an awful lot of British Columbians that uh, participate and go fishing from time to time. And, um, you know, the hope is that uh, once things uh, change a little bit and, and people can move around the province, that they'll, uh, they'll consider, uh, you know, maybe having a different experience and visiting a, a, a location or going out with a guide that they might not have done ordinarily. And so that's the hope, is that uh, there'll be a little bit more space this year, obviously, because uh, right. that component won't be coming. But, uh, you know, there's, the, there's definitely lots of opportunity and uh, good things to experience right around this province. So you want the lo- you'd like some locals to step up, maybe people who'd always wanted to but didn't think they could compete with all the tourists coming to town. That's right. I mean, a lot of times uh, the availability of these kinds of experiences is is kind of tough, and so uh, yeah, that that that's it. It, it. Not even step up, but just say, well, here's here's an opportunity to learn a little bit more about either a a place in the province they might not have uh, have visited, um, or or uh, a fishery that they've participated in, but. Uh, you know, don't have the time or haven't had the ability to learn about it as much as a, as a local guide may have. Well, what do you think is the most popular type of fishing experience of people who come to BC? Well, that, that's, you know, that's one of the great things about our province when, you know, not only the size, but also the variety. So it really does depend on where people end up in, in our province. So, you know, of course we have fantastic ocean fishing that uh, ranges from, from salmon to, uh, you know, walking a beach and, and gathering clams and crabs and prawns to um, world-class um, rainbow trout lake fishing and, and river fishing that, you know, extends right to the Rockies. So we're kind of... Uh, um, you know, embarrassed for all the all the riches that we have in many regards. So it's uh, it's it's kind of a nice a, a nice situation to to have as far as British Columbians having an opportunity to maybe you know reach out and 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 check some of these fantastic experiences out. Do you think British Columbians understand that those who don't fish? Do, they, do you think they understand that there are some rivers here in BC that are on the you know the list of the top five in the world? Oh, we've. We, we, that's again. It's an embarrassment of riches. You know, we <laughs> we we have many many locations that are around this province, north and south, that are on bucket lists all over the world. And so, I think you're totally right that many many people, you know, particularly in in the urban areas that uh, that you know hear about these things once in a while, they just they just aren't they aren't aware of just what our province has to offer. I mean, not just for fishing, but just, just as a general comment about the, the fantastic uh, province that we live in. So you're right. This is probably a bucket list thing, right, for people out there. So, Owen, where can they find more information about taking one of these trips or going to one of these places? Well, there, there are, as you know, there are sites that uh, that definitely have all sorts of information about particular operations. But a, a good place to stop in at is it's called fishingbc.com, and this is this is kind of a, a collective of both freshwater and saltwater 
um, opportunities that exist, and they they talk about the regions, they talk about the different kinds of fishing, and uh, and link you to uh, to operations that uh, that offer those kinds of services, guiding and, and lodges and and that sort of thing. I I really do want to caution though that we want to be careful about. Uh, I'm not I'm not at this time proposing that we're traveling madly about the province because right. that's not what we're being told by you know Dr. Henry and and the uh, provincial health office um, and and just we're anticipating and very hopeful that uh, phase three will kick in and folks can move around the province and uh, and hoping that they will do that in a big way uh, when when the time is right. I'm sure they will. Owen, thanks for your time. Well, thank you very much too. That is Owen Bird, the Executive Director of the Sport Fishing Institute of BC. When things do open up, and we would expect that to be, you know, relatively soon, uh, this summer anyway, they are hoping that many locals, people from right here in BC, will take that opportunity to try to go fishing. Maybe something that you've always wanted to do, but you thought, oh man, I can't compete with these big money tourists who come to town. And make no mistake, there have that has fueled the industry for years, some deep-pocketed American-European tourists who come and, and just do these premium fishing experiences. Well, they're hoping that more British Columbians will want to do some of those this summer because there certainly will be the room uh, in order for you to help support our sport fishing industry. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. There's a sort of swirl around the society. Those are issues for the society. But from our perspective, the matter is clear. In terms of our relationship or Fraser Health relationship with the society, it's going to end uh, February 25th, 2021. Now that is Provincial Health Minister Adrian Dix. He was speaking with our Linda Steele yesterday, talking about the latest chapter in a story that has been going on for months now. It's about a hospice in Delta providing palliative care, but won't provide medical assistance in dying. And as you just heard, any taxpayer funding for the hospice has been cancelled. The Delta Hospice Society's Executive Director is Angelina Ireland and joins us now on the phone to talk about what comes next. Thank you very much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me, uh, Simi. I just want to tell you, I'm the president of the board of directors. I'm not the executive director of the hospice, so just to get that clear. Okay, so can you tell us what does come next now that it's clear that there won't be any more taxpayer funding? Well, you know, we we understand that position, but we just want uh, people to understand as well that we are standing to protect and to defend palliative care. Uh, And palliative care in the province of British Columbia um, is becoming less and less accessible. So we believe that um, this stance that we are taking is in the best interests of the public. And we would like to get our message to the public as to why we have done what we have done. But the, you're not going to op- offer something that is obligated by law. People are allowed to have medically assisted dying. It's their right to choose that. Why yes, would you now, deny them that? Talk about, no, no. Now let's talk about the law because that's a very important part. Now it's a federal law is to provide reasonable access to medical assistance in dying in the community. There is no law that states that medical assistance in dying must be provided in a hospice facility. Um, so reasonable access to MAID is provided by access in the hospital, which is right next door to us or at a home. And it's a Fraser Health policy that hospices are required to provide medical assistance in dying. So it's not the law here we're talking about. This is t- we're talking about a policy. Uh, we're, you know, we're talking about a directive. 
So then why choose to do this? So the Delta Hospice Society has had a long relationship in Delta, you know, with Fraser Health, providing these services for the community. You know, I was going over your website, your constitution last night. Why do this, which alienates you from members of the community? Well, it shouldn't. You know, it shouldn't at all. All we're asking, and now we're just asking our membership. That's a question. If they would like to return to the roots of palliative care, um, and we have, you know, people sh- should also understand that the roots of palliative care come from um, uh, from faith communities. You know, faith communities for over the last two thousand years have been the you know the basis of taking care of people in. But palliative care d- changes and develops, though. It used to be that people died in their homes, away from you know other people, dying quietly in private. We don't do that anymore. We allow people no, to pa- share no, in that with now, others. No, now, and as well, you know, your audience needs to understand that pal- palliative care has not changed. The World Health Organization has not changed its definition of palliative care. It does not include euthanasia. You know, every. A palliative care physician in this country will tell you this it does not include euthanasia. So what, it, what we're trying to say here is that, listen, you know, we have a crisis in this country. Uh, we have a book burning going on here in British Columbia in terms of what palliative care is. That's a and bit much, though, isn't it? A bo- how is it a no, book burning when this is no. something that the majority of Canadians support? Like, that's a very oh, harsh it, statement. No, we're, I'm talking about palliative care. And what I'm saying to you is that our esteemed minister refuses to even say the word palliative care. He only refers to hospice services. Now, we're, we're defending palliative care here for Canadians. And I'll tell you as well, there's also a law. It came through Bill C. People can still, I don't understand. People can still choose palliative care if they want it. The point is the choice is theirs. Nobody they, is forcing they, well, they them not to choose that. It's being, no, because, you know, this whole idea of palliative care is being wiped from the lexicon completely. Oh, I find that absolutely ridiculous to say that. Now, why are you changing the constitution of the Delta Hospice Society? Well, I've just asked, I've just spoken to you about that, is that we, no. want, to re- we want to return it to the proper roots of where palliative care came from. But that's not the roots of the Delta Hospice Society. Well, it is, in fact. It is, in fact. It actually isn't. In fact, I I know the Delta Hospice Society. I lived in that community when it was founded. I know many people who were involved in that. There were no religious overtones to the founding of the Delta Hospice Society. No, well, we're saying we're saying that we want to return it to palliative care. What does palliative care mean? That's your definition of palliative care, though. Pardon me? That's your definition of palliative care. That is not what the intention of the Delta Hospice Society was when it was founded. No, it isn't. It is not. It is not, ma'am. You know, palliative care is a very specific medical discipline that has been developed for the past 50 years in this country. And what we're saying is that people recognize what it is, but we have, the, you know, the government has said that it will protect palliative care. And, but it has not. The promises have not been fulfilled to protect it. And now there is less and less access to it. Over 70% of Canadians have zero access to palliative care. Now we're talking about two streams of two streams of healthcare here. We're not saying that people shouldn't be getting allowed made if they want it. Just that's not what we do. We do not provide that. That is not within the palliative care framework of, of what we do with with helping people. Where will you be providing that then? If you're going to provide it now to people, where will you be doing that? Well, we, where will we be providing palliative care? Yes. Well, well, you know, this is a private society. These are privately owned assets. We have a lease. Um, if the minister is suggesting that, you know, somehow they're going to, the government's going to step in and expropriate private assets, 
Well, you know, that clearly only happens in a communist country. We would like to continue to provide palliative care to the community like we have done for the last 10 years. And if the government does no longer want to be our partner, that's fine. We will continue as a private organization with a private facility and provide palliative care to the community. Now, Ms. Ireland, how do you respond to local politicians such as Ian Payton, the MLA in that area as well, who are not happy with the fact that people are trying to, as they always have been, become members of the Delta Hospice Society, and they're not being allowed to do so? Well, no, that's not actually... The reality of the situation is, over the last few months, we've, we've, we've accepted 900 applications. We now have a membership of 1,500 people. We, we just, we're at capacity. We just cannot administratively take any more people. To, you know, to, just to have 1,500 people meet together you know, is really difficult in Delta. We're going to have to go to some other community to even have a meeting. So, look, at some point you have to draw the line with how many people can, you can accept. We have accepted as many as we possibly could, probably more, given that, you know, the expense of just trying to have a meeting these days. So what are the plans then for the society moving forward? Do you plan to stay put where you are and continue to do what you're doing? Yes, of course. You know, we're not abandoning the community. Um, I'll tell you, you know, we're being very strong armed to accept euthanasia, uh, which we have refused to do. And we are doing that because we are standing on what palliative care is. And we are asking the government to, you know, uh, stick to their promises of protecting palliative care. This was unanimously accepted um, by the House of Commons that, that, you know, that Canadian government would protect palliative care. And all we have seen from that since um, is that they have really done nothing to it. They have now even um, lessened access to it. Um, and so this is something that people should be aware of. Um, and this is why we're making the stand we're making. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you so much, Jimmy. It's been a pleasure. That is Angelina Ireland with the Delta Hospice Society. You know, I I lived in that community when the Delta Hospice Society was formed, and this is so unlike what it originally was and what, and I know so many people who've been involved with it over the years. Uh, This is not the end of the story either. I know there was a meeting held yesterday with the mayor of Delta, with the two MLAs from the area, from both parties, one a BC Liberal, one an NDP MLA, uh, and others to talk about what are the next steps moving forward to continue to provide that type of care in that community, you know, to make more options available out there, because that is the key situation here. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, there have been a lot of recommendations that we've heard about to protect people from COVID-19 in places like stores, uh, in restaurants, and on public transportation. But what about sports? You know, getting kids back playing sports, or maybe you want to go back playing sports, uh, that has been a big consideration, too, as we open things back out here. Well, the province has asked the nonprofit group Via Sport to provide some guidelines for getting all of that rolling again. So to learn more about that, we are joined by the CEO of Via Sport. That is Charlene Krepiakovich. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Sammy. Good morning. Now, I know, how long has it been, like, working on these guidelines? This must have been quite a task. Yes. Well, um, the Minister of Tourism, Arts and Culture, Minister Bear, asked Via Sport to undertake this um, this work to consult with lots of different groups to uh, come up with a set of guidelines that will help sport organizations look at how they return to our communities. So essentially, this is a, 
you know, a framework for all the different sports to now look at, okay, how do I take this information and apply it to my, uh, my sport? Because every sport has got lots of different considerations. And certainly in this um, state, this phase of the pandemic, um, there needs to be some, you know, modifications to ensure that we've got, um, you know, our, our kids and families and communities um, safe, keeping them safe. Do you think we have enough of those guidelines now to be able to say that, okay, we can think about opening up some of these sports again? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we've we've uh, consulted with, um, you know, health officials and WorkSafe BC and have now released the return to sport guidelines on our website via sport.ca. And um, now the uh, sport organizations will look at these guidelines and, um and, and validate their own uh, sport-specific uh, guidelines to introduce into communities. So uh, we should start to see um, our sports uh, releasing their own plans in the coming weeks as they uh, look to create plans that are modified and, and safe um, right. for the return to sport. Mm-hmm. Can you give us an idea of what some of the guidelines are like? Like what can parents and kids expect here? Yeah, so there's sort of um, sort of five things that we consider that are sort of key considerations for sports. One is about facility access, and this is really to ensure that we can control or the sport organizations can control the, the group size. So you know we want to make sure that they're you know under fifty, um, and that um, there's you know physical distancing, and that we've got booking procedures um, in place so that. We can control the flow of people coming and going. So facility access is is a key consideration. Um, so you know, um, you know, ensuring that there's uh, good communication to participants to outline when do they come, where do they go. Um, if parents are coming, we, they need to um, be factored into the the number of people <clears throat> attending. Um, and also restricting use in terms of um, like equipment storage areas, right. locker rooms, team benches, all of those types of things. So facility access is important. Um, and of course, in this phase, we're really encouraging, um, you know, the bulk of the activities to take place outside. Um, but if not, then certainly, um, you know, there's some some consideration that could be done for for indoor activities. Right. The facility access sounds like it could be tricky though, right? Because if you want people to space out, physically distance, you can't have all the teams showing up at the same time or, you know, there ha- have to be space put between those teams. How is that going to work? Well, exactly. And that sort of leads to another um, key consideration that we put in our guidelines, which is really all about the sport programming. So how do we adjust the sport programming in this um, in this phase of the pandemic. So uh, what we're focusing on really is about uh, individual skill development and less team play um, because of the physical distancing requirements and the sharing of equipment, et cetera. So in this time, we're looking at recommending um, sort of modifications to sports so that um, it's focused on sort of drills, individual skill development so that the participants are spaced out, and that the uh, contact is is low. Right, so getting them back out there, back on the field, but not necessarily playing games and full-on because there might be too much contact? Exactly, yeah. So this is really a, a really unique opportunity, uh, 
to um, to try a few things differently. Um, but the goal is really to get people back out in, in the community to try sport, to look at um, this sort of individual skill development um, at this particular time in the in the pandemic. And and as things progress, uh, with, you know, with the guidance of uh, Dr. Henry, we, you know, we hope that we can. Um, you know, get back to more team play later on. But for now, we're really focused on sort of that um, individual skill development and, and limited um, sort of team contact. Right. Is that how you foresee it for the summer then? Uh, yeah, well, that's sort of what we're seeing is sort of more uh, individual um uh, activities rather than um, you know team team games um, and certainly no travel to uh, you know other other right. clubs. This is really about sort of club activities uh, for now. So does this apply as well to say adult recreational leagues as as well, or is this just for youth? <laughs> Um, well, no. So uh, we be sport works with um, uh, about seventy different provincial sport organizations like Hockey BC, Soccer BC, Tennis BC, etc. And so those organizations now will develop their own plans, you know, based on their sport. Every sport is going to be a bit different, and they'll roll them out um, as they, uh, you know, as as they can. Um, and you know, some of the sports um, do have, you know, you children-based activities, youth-based activities, and adult-based activities right. and programs. So every sport will be a little bit different. Um, it, but in terms of sort of, um, you know, uh, pick up games by, you know, uh, people who are playing baseball or whatever that might be, I mean, that will be something that each group will have to talk to the facility around uh, how do they um, implement or have right. to have their game in this new normal. All right. Uh, so thank you very much for telling us all about all it right. this morning. Thanks so much, Simi. Have a good day. You Bye too. That is the CEO of VIA Sports, Charlene Krepiakovich, talking about the guidelines that they have produced, which now go to different leagues, different sports for them to kind of modify it so that they can figure out how to get you know, kids playing sports again, whether it is just individual drills. Although baseball seems to me a sport that was made for physical distancing, doesn't it? Uh, so it will differ depending on what sport your child plays. This is Mornings with Simi. Can we produce enough of our own food sustainably? That's a very important question that is behind the book Uncertain Harvest. It's just out in paperback, actually. A few months ago, we would have said climate change was the reason to talk about this. Well, now we say climate change and the possibility of more pandemics. COVID-19 resulted in a run of groceries. We saw those empty shelves, right? They scared all of us. Things got more expensive. Even Statistics Canada is predicting that food is going to continue to cost us more. So let's talk more about this. Joining us now is Sarah Rotz, one of, uh, an assistant professor in the Department of Social Sciences at York University and one of the authors of Uncertain Harvest. Sarah, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Do you feel like when all of this started, you thought, boy, this book is more timely than ever? <laughs> uh yeah, I did. I there there were several conversations that we had in the book and predictions that we made um although very very clearly trying to say that you know we don't have all the answers and and a lot of uh, attempts at predicting the future don't always go so well. So um you know very tentatively making predictions but it, in many in many cases a lot of the foundational issues have, have been revealed, for sure. Right. And one of the ways that is, is you talk a lot about kind of concentrated supply chains. Is that one of the issues where you thought, yeah, we knew this was going to be a problem? 
Yes, uh, I would say I would say that I've been doing work around industrialization in the food system, food system concentration. So this idea that a small number of growing corporations are taking up larger parts of the food production, distribution, processing uh, markets, and those industries are. Um, expanding into sort of oligopolistic um, uh, sectors. And that's creating a situation where very few companies are able to control a vast um, sector right. of, that, of that industry. So we see right now JBS, Cargill, Maple Leaf, Olamel, they control nearly all of Canada's meat production and also account for um, the vast majority, over 85% of Canada's meat production and, and uh, the meat plants themselves. Do you think people have a better understanding of that, the kind of fragility of that food supply, of that system, given that we had some of those outbreaks happen at places like Cargill that did result in some shortages? Yeah, I think so. I, I really hope so. I think, I think what it's revealing are the trade-offs of uh, the industrial model. So the, this model of meat processing tells us we need, to, we need to process a lot of meat really quickly. High volumes, high output as fast as possible. Uh, and a lot of research in food systems has shown and, and tried to ring the alarm bells for quite some time now um, you know, for example, another book called The Chain by uh, Ted Genoways, he, he reveals the details of industrial meat processing very, very well in the, in the U.S. context. Uh, but we're seeing it very much, very similar in, in Canada. And the implications of that are that not only are, is, is there a higher incidence of possible contamination in terms of meat supply and food supply, and we've seen that over um, the past 10, 15 years in terms of uh, different kinds of contamination like E. coli and things like that, but also the impacts of worker health, well-being, the rising use of migrant farm, uh, migrant workers, immigrant uh, laborers who have very, very little support, very little income supports, access to health care. Uh, so, they're, they are in a very precarious situation themselves, mm-hmm. and then they're actually being asked in many in many ways to work in low wage situations that are hot, really confined, um, in many cases very unsanitary, and they're really really physically close together, right? And yeah. they they don't actually have a lot of options in terms of being able to take time off, being able to receive the the healthcare that they need, and things like that. And they're also in terms of a position of power with their employers, they're actually pretty, pretty low down. And that, that's another, of course, that's a major concern. So we've built a system that works really well for the profits of Cargill and JBS, but really not well at all for, for workers and also for consumers, I, I want to say. So is there a way to fix this, though? I mean, do people recognize it or do you think we're just going to go back to doing what we did before because it's convenient? Well, I really hope not. I think government right now, people and consumers and also government is 
um, paying a lot of attention to this situation. And I think what's being revealed is the problems with uh, when governments try to invest in companies to solve problems. So just by investing in Cargill and JBS to sort of clean up their acts a little bit, but not really actually resolving the larger issues around uh, where our food comes from, who gets to control um, uh, food processing facilities, do, asking questions about, do we, is it okay for a food processing facility to be that large? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Or do we need to have a a larger number of smaller abattoirs and processing facilities? So these are the larger questions. And and so I think the answer needs to be that funding needs to go directly to communities, directly to um, farmers who are actually practicing uh, agroecological methods and sort of non-commercial practices of food production, distribution, and food access, because we know there's a lot of inequity in terms of who gets right. to access food. And, and quickly as well, Sarah, I know you touched on this in the book, but are there certain things that you think we should get used to eating that would be more effective for the food chain? That's a really great question. Um, yes, I ideally, I, I would really love to see a cultural shift, but of course, this also means an economic shift in um, how we think about the food that we're eating and then and then ultimately our access to that food. So locally produced food means that we will have to think more about um, and, and especially foods that work well with the mm-hmm. soil and the um, the ecology and the climate of our uh, bioregion. And that so that might mean more pulses, more, um, a, div- a higher diversity of grains, so uh, less maybe processed grains and, and uh, foods from processed corn and soy, more um, even th- bringing back more oats, more legumes, and then also more seasonally available fruits and vegetables. Right. People and, talked about um, it. I don't know if they're going to stick with it, though, right, after all of this is said and done. But listen, Sarah, thank you so much for being with us this morning. We appreciate that. Thank you. Have a great day. We'll have to talk to Sarah again. That is Sarah Rotz, Assistant Professor in the Department of Social Sciences at York University. Uh, The book, of which she is one of the co-authors, is called Uncertain Harvest. It just came out in paperback, so you can check that out to talk more and learn more about food policy and food systems changing.